Welcome to episode 33 of Girls on Pop. I'm your co-host, Brain Antunes, joined by a fellow co-host. I am Ashley Lynch. We are back after a short hiatus of, uh, I guess we could call it summer break. A long hiatus. Yeah, it's been like Feels over like a month, forever. hasn't it? It, fe- it does feel like it's been forever. I'm pretty sure it's been a, a, probably a month, if not a bit longer. It, it's like eight years in podcast time. That's right. We apologize for that. It's mostly my fault. I did get COVID in that in that window of time. So does that is that count as an excuse? That that le- <laughs> you can lean on that instead of like you know the 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 long camping vacation. That part is uh, maybe we a little actually- less sympathetic to the average listener. Yeah, we didn't. I mean, we did go away for a little while. We were kind of on and off for about two weeks. We we did a couple of trips, but uh, it was sort of our summer break. And then, of course, we did the air show and got COVID. So that put us out for like another week. <laughs> and then, of course, you you know you try to madly catch up for the week that you lost to COVID because nothing happens during COVID week. It's like you're in COVID jail. Yep. Um, but before we get into the nitty gritty of the conversation, and it is going to get nitty gritty in a minute, um, where can folks find you for those that are new or those that have forgotten in the eight years that we've find, been away? Best place to find me is on Twitter at Ashley Lynch. And you can find me also on the Twitter at the Marina, but let's jump right into things. Cause we do have quite a bit to talk about and I'll preface this by saying, um, because we have been away for such a long time, we're going to split this week's episode actually into two. Uh, so we're going to record this in two parts. We're going to do part one today, and then we'll be back next week with part two of the conversation. So just a heads up that this is not everything that we've watched. And on top of it, this is the already part down list. Cause I think the list was much, much longer. <laughs> It's like the Infinity War and Endgame of podcast episodes for us. That's right. That's right. And honestly, the list that I sent you when I was doing my show notes, I parted down even more. You know, I always start off making my list. I'm like, oh, God, I don't know if I have that many things to talk about. But this time, because we had the hiatus, it's like, oh, my God, I have so many movies to talk about. And then I made my list and said, not actually that many. (laughs) I thought it would be more. (laughs) <laughs> I I did watch a lot more, but there were there was a lot of shit in that list, so I left that off. Yeah, but okay, I, I I left out some of the chaff as well. Yeah, but let's start with um, the dumpster fire news story. Let's start there before we talk about like some movie stuff. Well, yeah. movie reviews. The the HBO Warner <laughs> Brothers Discovery Plus dumpster fire that happened in the uh, in the wake of the. Um, the the merger that took place between Discovery and and Warner Brothers HBO Max and basically they've appointed uh, D- David Zaslav to CEO of Warner who basically comes out of the Discovery Plus side having basically reality TV is the world he comes out of and the immediately the company is thrown into complete disarray with how it was being managed. Uh, for starters, the company, as a result of this acquisition, is now $44 billion in debt. That's billion with a B, which if you can even conceive that. And so basically the directive from the board was essentially find some way to cut like $2 billion of cost out of Warner Brothers. And what is the result? All of a sudden, a lot of projects are being canceled. There are finished films that have just basically been scrapped outright 
as a tax write-off because they make more money and they, it's it's more profitable to them to just like wipe these films off the face of the earth and take the tax write-off to cut down their debt than it is to release the film for however much money it will make. And so as a result, like the two biggest projects are the Batgirl project, which was more or less done and was going to be releasing soon. They, it, it'll now never see the light of day. It's just gone for good. And another one is the uh, animated uh, Scoob movie. And in one of the most depressing turns I've ever seen is the uh, composer for the score of Scoob posted on Instagram a picture of the recording session for the sound uh, for the score for Scoob and said, what do you do when the movie's been canceled, but you've already paid for the space and the artist? You record the damn score. So they did an entire recording session where they recorded the score to Scoob that no one will ever hear because the movie is now just a tax write-off. And this, uh, on top of this, they've like actually been started removing original movies from HBO Max and just like shelving those. And they've been killing a lot of animated shows. Apparently it's got a real focus on just like gutting animation as much as possible. And so right now, uh, Warner Brothers is in, in really bad shape. It's, uh, it's, it's not pretty over there. And they're not making any friends amongst artists or audiences. I had seen um, news about the Batgirl movie. And I remember when it first broke, I was like, no, this has got to be some sort of joke. The show, There's no way the movie was finished. And they've just decided not to release it. But within the context of what's going over on over there, now it makes more sense. I still, it's disappointing because, um, especially on the animation side of things, because a lot of those um, animated direct to video films that Warner Brothers has been doing for the last, let's say 10 years are actually really good, particularly the superhero ones. Mm -hmm. They've been, Excellent. And, you know, there's a great roster of um, a talent and storytelling that's happening in that little niche world that's really, really well received. It's, it's sad to, to see that that might disappear altogether. I, I just don't even know what to say at this point. It's just, it, to me, it's just such a clusterfuck of things. <laughs> How do you even move beyond this? Who even thought that this was a good idea to merge these two entities is what I want to know. Well, it's it's so frustrating, too, because you almost kind of get it like, okay, if a TV show gets canceled, you know, after a year, whatever. That's been the landscape of television since ever. It got a shot. It didn't have its audience. It failed out. That's fine. But now they're setting the precedence of, hey, let's make art but then just throw it away before anyone can see it and take the tax right off. And there is a worry that this will become a, um, a reliable strategy, financial strategy for, for other studios, even in the future as a way to like get their liabilities down, you know, basically doing the producers, let's just like purposely make some piece of shit and have all these hardworking people, try to make this film that no one will ever see because it's just going to be thrown in the garbage at the end of the day. So we can take the tax right off. And it's incredibly frustrating. It is a very uh, anti art um, perspective. 
that they're taking that you only get when you have like, you know, the, this kind of like cold, hard look at the financials and everything else is garbage kind of attitude. And other people have said is like, at least in the old system, when you had like the old Hollywood families that were running these studios, when it was the Warners that owned Warner brothers, or even a lot of the companies that followed they were at least run by people that cared about movies. And right now, HBO Warner uh, Discovery is not run by people who like movies at all. They are people who are actually, like I said, anti-art. And it is just about whatever is going to make the most amount of profit the fastest with the least amount of investment. Which is also why at their their, uh, recent board meeting, they showed that basically they've got a real kind of eye towards proofing everything in the reality TV direction because that's where they see they make a lot of money with, you know, shit like 90 Day Fiancé, which I've honestly never heard of, but they say it's an entire universe of shows. And it's it's incredibly frustrating. And as someone who works in this industry, it's a little scary. Um on the animation side, I've edited a couple shows that are intended to go to HBO Max, and now they're, whether or not they're actually ever going to be aired now is a little bit up in the air, and so everyone's, like, a little nervous in in my world, and it's not fun. It sucks. Uh, what, what I don't quite understand either is the... Like the not even bothering to release content on HBO Max because honestly, what does it cost you to put material out there for people to find? If you don't want to put money behind the marketing of it, then don't. But like, what's the what's I don't it's understand all, the it's mentality. All about the tax write off. If you yeah. even if it's a film that's already been released, like they've been like you know removing some films, it is an asset. It's an asset that's amortized amortized over uh, several years, and as long as there is still amortized value in that asset that they own, then they can just flush it down the toilet and call it a loss and take the tax write off. And given the fact that they're sitting on forty four billion dollars of debt. That is one way to get your debt down is to just like do massive tax write-offs. And the it's shitty for everyone except their bottom line. It's shitty for the artists. It's shitty for the audiences. It's shitty for the future landscape of film and television in general. It, there is very little, very little upside for anyone for this. It just, and it, it feels really icky. Yeah, no, it totally does. I mean, the only thing I can see coming out of this in any sort of positive light, like, yes, it's scary that other studios might see this as a way to bring down their debt as well. But I mean, in the end, I mean, I, I assume at some point the creators are going to start jumping ship out of the Warner Brothers uh, family if they can't, if there's a fear that whatever they've spent the last five years of their time on isn't going to see the light of day. And it's only a matter of time before they have no one to, to, to create content for them. And that's problematic. And if the other studios see that happening, and I assume at some point that will happen if this continues in the direction that it's going, um, it's only a matter of time before the other studio starts to realize that this is not the way to do business because at some point 
you're going to lose all the creators. Mm-hmm. Everybody's just going to go somewhere else. I'm sure there there will be other networks and other studios and other things that pop up that will take these people on um, if they see an opportunity. Because it is, in the end, about business. And people still want to see stuff. And not all of us want to see reality TV, though I I fully admit that, you know, a large swat of the population might be into that. There is also a hunger for other entertainment. Um, and that needs to be created by somebody. Mm-hmm. So I'm well, hoping the, that there is a bit of a silver lining there. The directing team that did Batgirl, um, and of course is like completely gutted by this decision, mm-hmm. you know, understandably, they directed a couple episodes of Ms. Marvel, and they also directed Bad Boys for Life, which was incredibly successful. And I, from what I understand, there's been interest in Sony in setting up a new Bad Boys film after that. Whether or not that will happen, you know, post-Will Smith, we'll see, because it seems like he's a little bit on the persona non grata side after the whole Oscar slap thing. But regardless, immediately after it got announced that uh, that Batgirl got scrapped, and apparently they got told at one of their weddings, they were at their wedding, and it's like, oh, by the way, you know, your film's dead. Um, they immediately got a message from Kevin Feige, you know, saying... Uh, you know, I'm so sorry this happened to you guys. My heart's with you. We'll work on something together soon. You know, because he's very proud of the work they did on Ms. Marvel. And it's like, if you've got a choice between rolling the dice again with where Warner Brothers is in its current state, or Kevin Feige is interested in doing something with you at Disney and Marvel, you're going to go with Marvel. Because at least there's like you know you know that he's gonna like be taking care of you as a creator to a certain degree. You're still gonna be part of this huge machine, but you know you're not gonna get into a situation where Disney is writing off your film as a tax write off, and no one will ever see it. You know it's they they are going to lose people as a result of it. I mean, to a certain degree, it's like getting a go picture is hard enough in the best of times. If Warner Brothers is willing to hand out money for people to make movies, they'll have no trouble finding filmmakers to take that money. But there's a lot of filmmakers who they're going to have options on the table. It's like, hey, I've got this film that Warner Brothers is interested in making, or I also have this opportunity at Sony where they want to do a Bad Boys sequel. Like, what are you going to go with? Right now, going with Sony would be the least, you know, would would be the the project with the least unknowns in it, because yeah. Warner Brothers is shown. It's like your film may not even even get out there. We may just shelve it. Yeah, exactly, and that may, that's particularly difficult for filmmakers that don't have a long-standing relationship with Warner Brothers because they tend to, uh, like filmmakers that that work there tend to stay there. If their films, if their films are successful, they tend to make more than one at Warner brothers. But um, for first time filmmakers or filmmakers that have a miss in their catalog with Warner's. Yeah. There's always that fear that nobody might get to see your next project. So yeah, go elsewhere if you have the opportunity for sure. For sure. Yeah. So like I say, dumpster fire. I mean, we'll see how it shakes out. I don't think this is going to be, I don't think this strategy is going to be a winning strategy for them. I think in a couple of years, they're going to find out, oh crap, this did not work out the way we were hoping it was going to work out. And I think it's probably going to take about five years before we see any like reconstructive change that happens over there. But like, I don't think 
that I thought was going to be there very long. Um, I'm with you. I think he's going to be replaced and hopefully someone's going to come in and write the ship. But it's also, you know, I think it, it stands to be said also that it looks like of a lot of the people that they are basically letting go in this cost saving, uh, journey that they are on is to, uh, basically get rid of as many, uh, women and people of color as possible. It's um, already been pretty heavily reported that the people being released by Warner Brothers and HBO Max tend to be women, tend to be people of color, and definitely tend to be women of color. And they have a stated mandate where they want to try to appeal more to middle America. So, which means to, which is just a euphemism for we need to make everything white, male, and straight. And so you also you know, can't dismiss the fact that you look at Batgirl, like here's a film by two directed by two Moroccan brothers about a woman of color. I wonder why Batgirl got canned, you know? No shit. Oh my God. (laughs) You can't make this shit up. It it writes itself. Yeah. It's, it's depressing all around. It totally is. I just hope that Batgirl leaks and gets out there. It seems increasingly likely that's not going to happen at this point. But I, someone, please, if you've got it on a hard drive, just throw it up on a torrent site and release it out into the world. I have a feeling at this point, in five years, when the uh, the mandate of the studio changes, we may see a a release of Batgirl, the lost movie. You know that would be awesome. I would love that. I want I want to see like a little victory lap for this little movie that could. Exactly, I see. Even it if too. it sucks, I don't care if it sucks. I just want to see it. I'm with you. I'm with you. But let's talk about some movies and hopefully some good stuff. Yeah. Um and we are looking at the list. It looks like we're going to stick to movies mostly this time around and then next week we'll come back with a bit, a couple more movies and some TV, but let's jump right in. And I thought I would start with I I swear it's a good one. If you like Shania Twain, it's a good one. Um, I I recently caught up with uh, Shania Twain, Not Just a Girl, which is a new documentary on Netflix um, directed by um, Joss Crowley, who is known for making music docs. Uh, he got his start uh, working on, uh, I think it's the MTV Live uh, music concert series. And he's done like a documentary on Elvis Costello and Jeff Beck. Um, so he is not new to this world um i really like shania twain beyond the fact that she's a canadian uh artist who made good um i've just always just really liked her and her energy so this was a really interesting look at uh her life particularly the last sort of half of her career i would say maybe over the last five or six years because she did sort of fall off the face of the earth um after she had put out I think it was three like back to back platinum albums. Uh, and then she just kind of disappeared and it wasn't clear as to where she had gone and why. Um, I hadn't realized that she had suffered through an illness where she had lost her voice and she almost never came back. So it's a, right. it's, it's a really interesting story about this artist who there was a lot of speculation about her career. She's always been very private about her private life. So, um, everybody knew she was married to Mutt Lang, but nobody really knew the details. He was much older than she was. So, it, 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 and she's very candid about 
everything that happened with, you know, her career and her relationship and the illness and the struggle to come back and how that's a continuing struggle for her. So, I mean, it's, it's a really good, it's a really solid music talk. It's, Clearly, if you're not a Shania Twain fan, probably not for you. But if you're even vaguely curious, it's really good. I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was really well done. And it was great to see her, honestly. It feels like I haven't seen Shania Twain in like a minute. So it was nice to 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 hear from her and, and hear her sing and, and kind of see that she's kind of back on track. So I well, recommend Not Just a Girl. It's great. You know, as a Saskatchewan girl, I should be a big Shania Twain fan. But I also can't stand country music. So I am not a big Shania Twain fan. I I know of her. I've heard many of her hit songs just played on the radio. But aside from that, that is the full extent of what I know about Shania Twain. Well, that and the fact that I'm sure you know that she uh, um, uh, discovered Avril Lavigne. I did not know that. Yeah, so our, she and Avril Lavigne are from the same small town. Um, and because uh, they're from Ontario, and now I cannot remember the name of the town. I know there's a song about it, but I don't remember what it is. But yeah, Avril Lavigne is from the same town that Shania Twain is from. And uh, she was like a, a local sort of little celebrity because she was very young. She was still a teenager and she actually sang, I think Jenny Twain brought her on stage when she was in town doing a concert and that's how she got discovered. So it was that kind of like, yeah, it was kind of this great story because they are so not artists to share like the same musical genre, but uh, yeah, there's a little bit of uh, a fun. It's the, it goes back to this thing. Oh, you're from Canada. Do you know Joe from Saskatoon? <laughs> that, that may be the most Canadian story that you've ever told. It should be one of those Canada Post historical, right? Moments. Right. It totally should. It totally PSAs. should. I should also say that I, I mean see the for- dramatization of should I tweet and Avril if he could the same. Yeah. Hey, why not? This is a Canadian moment. I mean, I think it's also worth noting that um, for those that are maybe just generally country music fans that uh, want kind of like an insight into like the blip in time where country music changed and became more like popular music, this yeah. is a nice kind of uh, look at that as well because Shania kind of kicked off, maybe not kicked off, but she was really the big push behind that that change and the the kind of the change of country music from like what you would think about your mom and dad's country music to like pop country, I guess is what it would be called now. Yeah, I can absolutely see that because like, even though I'm not into country music, my parents very much are. That's all they ever listened to his country music. So when I was still living at home, I got subjected to a lot of country music. And it was over that period where there was that shift in the music from just like really kind of like, you know, classic, like, you know, like my, I grew up with my parents listening to stuff like Randy Travis and stuff like that. And then that shift into it being more like pop music. Yeah. It's a good, it's a solid documentary, but I'm fully biased because I do like Shania Twain. So I'll put that out there as well. (laughs) But yeah, not just a girl on Netflix recommended, but um, Beast, talk to me about Beast because I'm wondering if this is the movie I've seen or if this is something that I know nothing about. Okay, so Beast, like you'll know immediately, Beast is the movie with Idris Elba where he takes his 
kids to uh, Africa after the passing of their mother for a safari trip. And they get uh, stuck out in the the wilderness and basically stalked by a uh, rogue killer lion. Um, I have not seen this one, but I know the one. There's another yeah. small, there's an, a small indie British movie called Beast as well, which is okay. why I was like, I wonder which one she's referring to. No. And this is, this is a movie that is like a particular kind of like subgenre that I particularly like. Like other, other movies that I think are, you know, you could equally watch with this movie are like the, uh, the shallows, um, the one where, where Blake Lively just stuck out on the, on the, the reef with the, the shark that's circling her and she's injured or crawl where she's trapped underneath the house with her dad. And there's a, there's alligators that are stalking them as the, basements filling up with water during a flood it's definitely of that like we need to survive and there's wild animals that are trying to kill us sort of genre and beast is very much that um and it is a honestly i thought it was a wonderful film i absolutely loved it uh it's idris elba so you know at a certain level it's just gonna be like you know both awesome powerful and badass and uh and it was just um Script was really tight, beautifully filmed, absolutely beautifully filmed. It's um, the cinematography in particular, like the the composition and the blocking reminded me of like some of Spielberg's best work in how it has these long extended takes where it's not just like a one but it's like the composition of the shot is constantly evolving and there's actually like minimalistic edits that are going on, but it doesn't feel like the camera's like just not cutting or anything like that. And it's, you know, it kept, kept turning and twisting and was great thrill ride. And by the time I got to the end of the movie, it was like exactly what I wanted it to be. It was just a really solid ass movie. That was a lot of fun. Um, There's one thing that I'm still trying to like wrap my head around totally. And I kind of want to see some behind the scenes stuff, but there's like at the very beginning of the movie we see um uh we see uh oh what's his name um shit i'm blanking on his name the the other actor that's in it um playing with with a bunch of lines that he raised from cups and they look very much like real lions the way they're like pawing him it's like pushing back against him it's like okay i've if, if these are CG lines, these are like the best freaking lines I've ever seen in my entire life. So I'm, I think that's probably real lines that they shot with for that, but I'm not hundred percent sure. And then by the time we get to the rogue line that's stalking them, uh, it definitely is a CG line because they're making that lion do things that like, you just cannot train a lion to do. You know, you cannot like get a lion to hit their mark like that when they're attacking a vehicle, it just, it doesn't work that way. So obviously it's a CG line, but that line also looks really good. And I, I'm guessing that they started filming with real lions. So that's like, okay, this is what lions look like. And then by the time you get to the CG line, you've got in your head that these are all real lions now and it helps sell it better. It's just like, it's, I don't know. I was really impressed by this movie. I thought it was a really good little thriller and I, and I enjoyed it a lot. 
I I remember seeing the trailer. I forgot that it was called Beast, but I remember seeing the Idris Elba movie where, you know, they're being hunted by some wild animal. And the first thing I thought was, I've seen this movie. It was called Endangered Species. (laughs) And I rather enjoyed it when it was directed by M.J. Bassett. Not quite sure how I feel about watching a remake. I know it's not a remake, <laughs> but yeah. I just, I, I, I'm always like a bit skeptical and I'm like, but I've already seen this movie. What are you talking about? This isn't new. It's a very simplistic name that I'm sure a lot of movies have shared with. It's like just sort of like commonplace, but yeah. it's this, it's this movie that I've been pushing on people for a bit because I know no one's going to go see this movie. I saw it in the middle of a day on, on I think, like a Sunday or a Saturday or something like that. I saw it like a 3 p.m. showing. I was the only person in the theater. They would have shut down that screening if I was not there. And I remember when um, when Crawl came out, the the alligator movie that Alexandra Aja did. And I went to go see that, too. And I couldn't get anyone to go see it with me. Everyone's like, the alligator movie? Seriously? And I was like, yeah, the fucking alligator movie. No one wanted to go see it. And there was like three other people in the theater. I don't think it did great. And then it comes out on streaming. And suddenly I got everyone saying to me, oh, have you seen this movie? Crawl is great. It's like, yes, I tried to fucking tell you. <laughs> it's the same thing with Beast, exact same thing with that, where it's like everyone's going to ignore this freaking movie, which is really great. You know, it's exactly what you want this movie to be. And then when it comes out on streaming, everyone's going to act like they just discovered it. Yeah, pretty much. Don't listen to me. So the, the the moral of this story is listen to Ashley when exactly. she recommends something, watch it. In all cases. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually on my watch list. I just honestly forgot that it was called Beast. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Um, I caught up. I had a day, a couple of days where I kind of went through like a Netflix phase where I kind of caught up on all the stuff that was on my back. Not all, but a lot of the new stuff that was on my backlist. So the other thing that I caught up with was um, the new adaptation of Jane Austen's Persuasion uh, with Dakota Johnson and Cosmo Jarvis. I'm not really sure what to say. I mean, if you're into these types of movies, you've likely seen a version of persuasion at some point in your life. Um, uh, Carney Crackwell, who Carrie Crackwell, who's the director here, she's she's done one feature and she's directed a bunch of uh, national theater live presentations. So she's this is her second feature film. It's not that it shows that the the film is like really aptly made. It's just like it's not particularly memorable beyond <laughs> Dakota Johnson. And Cosmo Jarvis, who are both really good. And I really, really like Cosmo Jarvis, so it's nice to see him in anything at this point. Um, and he's a very good Wentworth. I, I don't really know what to say. Like it's 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 a it's a fine movie with some really top-notch performances. Uh the writing it is what it is. I mean, it's based on a Jane Austen novel, so they don't take, you know, too many swings at it. It's, it's a very traditional adaptation. Um it's it's good. I enjoy, I really enjoyed it. But really, what did it for me were the the performances. And yeah, Dakota Johnson is also quite good. So I don't really know what else to say about it other than watch it, people. I, I, it's a good. I one. honestly did not even know that this existed. Well, you know the, the the Netflix algorithm decided that I watch enough period dramas that I would probably enjoy this one, and they were correct. I, I'm just so behind on whatever is on Netflix. It's like 
I have a hard time keeping track of it because they advertise their stuff so poorly. It either shows up on your front page or you don't know it exists until someone mentions it. Exactly. That's, and that's one of my big Netflix frustrations. I, that's my frustration with a lot of the stuff on Netflix too, for the same exact reason. Half the time people mention stuff and I'm like, I had no idea this was even here because the algorithm forgot to remind me. Clearly it didn't think I would like this, but every once in a while it, it does hit. And uh, yeah, this one was one that was recommended and I really enjoyed it. So persuasion, Netflix, a go for me. Um, okay, so I've been meaning to catch up with the princess and I haven't had the time to see it yet. So I'm kind of curious to know what you thought of it. Yeah, as soon as I saw the trailer for this, I was very excited to hop into this. This is one of those, um, I don't even know what to call it, but it basically is one of those 20th Century Fox projects that got carried over to Disney. Um, and through whatever deal i've heard conflicting reports about whether or not it was like a sort of like pandemic we're going to send everything to hbo max deal but disney owns hulu so they're like we're going to send it to hulu deal or if it's just that they don't give a crap about the 20th century fox stuff and it's of a of mature enough that they're not going to stick it on disney plus um because it's not what you would call family-friendly content and so they don't want to stick it on theaters. They don't want to stick it on Disney Plus. So where does it go? They just dump it on Hulu. And it feels like that that feels more accurate to me. Uh, but anyways, yes, the the princess is it's just a straight up action movie about a princess in a medieval castle who is being held against her will because she's being forced to marry the this guy that has basically come in to overthrow the kingdom is like, he'll have all the land once this wedding is, is takes place. And instead, what does she do? She's a girl who has been, you know, training at martial arts her entire life. So it's basically like a reverse raid where instead of like trying to like fight their way up through the apartment building, she fights her way down the tower, just kicking everyone's ass along the way and it is just straight up martial arts fun uh, Joey King actually kicks a lot of ass in this movie she is actually really good at the action I can tell she trained her ass off to be able to do this movie and it's a lot of fun it's directed by uh, Lee Van Keith who's done a bunch of um, I want to say Oh God, I'm, I'm 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 trying to remember what country it's from. I want to say Thai action films. Might be I think Korean. I, no, I think Korean. I think he's Vietnamese, but I think that he does a lot of Thai action. Yeah, he he did the movie Fury, which was really mm. good, um, and I like that one a lot. Yeah, you're right, Vietnamese. Um, and so the action, this is really good. It's like plot, it's like it kind of inconsequential. It is what it is. It's just, it's the setup to get to the action and then the rest of the movie, just nonstop action from there all the way to the end. And the movie was a lot of fun. I had such a huge blast with it, you know? And it was definitely when you have like this type of setup, here's a little girl who fights a lot of, a lot of dudes and, you know, and, you know, that's the kind of, like, subversive take on it. You always expect it's like, okay, here's my ceiling of where the action's going to get to. 
and it goes way past that. The action in this movie is legit good. And it's uh it it just harkened back to a lot of the really fun kind of like nineties Hong Kong films that I absolutely loved. So it's uh definitely definitely a winner. I love the princess. Oh, fun. that's awesome to hear. I really like Joey King. Uh, bonus, she's Canadian. I did not know that. She is. She is. So I've, I've been kind of following her career for a few years now. So it's nice to see how that's progressed for her. So I, I was very curious to he- see this one. So I'm happy to hear that it's a good one. Definitely one that I'm planning on catching up with in the next couple of weeks. Um. As part of my let's try to catch up on stuff that could be Oscar contenders later in the year, but probably will not be, <laughs> Baz Luhrmann's Elvis <laughs> uh, with um, Austin Butler as Elvis and uh, Tom Hanks as, what do they call him, the captain? I don't Her, even Colonel remember. Colonel Parker, the, is that the, it? The, yeah, the colonel. Um, it is through and through a Baz Luhrmann film. I don't really know how else to describe this. It's like this visual spectacle that is not linear storytelling. And it's really fun to watch, but it's not going to be for everyone. Um, I personally enjoyed the storytelling and how this, like this life of Elvis unfolds. Um, and it is not, um, how you might expect. There's some fourth wall breaks, but they're not consistent. Uh, there's this jumping around through timelines, also not consistent. Sometimes the story feels um, almost like it's missing sections of uh, like entire eras, which I don't know if that's, I'm assuming it's purposeful. Maybe because at this point I find it hard to believe like that a director like Baz Luhrmann would not capture something on like by accident. So I can only imagine that it was purposeful. Um, All of that to say that it's just not your common biopic. Is it for everyone? Probably not. Is it for Elvis fans? Probably not because they're going to be angry. (laughs) I'm sure because it it, like it, it, it just kind of, it's, it's not like your typical biography where you get the whole story of Elvis. So I don't know if fans of Elvis will appreciate sort of the artistic um, freedom that Baz has with the, with his life. So I don't know who this movie is for is kind of what it's I'm for getting. Baz Luhrmann fans. It is. It, this is exactly who it's for. It is for Baz Luhrmann fans. So I thought it was great as a Baz Luhrmann film. Is it great as a film that, that that's still out. <laughs> Because I honestly don't know if it makes enough sense for, you know, the average moviegoer to, like, sit down and, like, enjoy it. It certainly looks great, but you really have to, like, let yourself go with what he's working on and what he's doing. And so it's not going to be for everybody. And that's, I think, the problem with Elvis is that it's kind of a – it doesn't know who it's for other than Baz Luhrmann fans. And I don't think that's a white enough audience for a movie. It's a yeah, it's a pretty niche audience, but at the same time, the dude's still making movies, still making big movies. So, who knows? Um, and everywhere I, I go, I seem to run into people who are Baz Luhrmann fans. So, you know, you never know. I haven't seen this movie yet, but it is on my list. I am going to watch it, um, and I say that knowing full well that I am not actually the biggest Baz Luhrmann fan. 
it's very kind of hit or miss for me. Sometimes it's just like you've gone way too far and I just can't take this movie seriously. You lost me. And other times I actually dig what he's doing. So it's always kind of a mixed bag. And who knows? Maybe I'll, I'll dig the Elvis movie. Um, I don't know. We'll see. I'll, I'll get there eventually. I, I will say that Austin Butler is very good. Um, I understand that he actually does his own singing in the movie, which is super impressive. Tom Hanks is Tom Hanks. He's kind of always really great. I'm not sure. I'm like, clearly they'd had, they had to do something with him because he doesn't look like the Colonel. Um, so, but the prosthetics, I think, uh, are a bit of a detriment to the performance. Um, they just, they, I don't think they look as good as they probably need to because we know it's Tom Hanks and he doesn't like sort of get lost in it. Mm-hmm. So it, it it's a little bit distracting at times. I have um, seen a few clips and it looks like he's doing a little bit more of like a larger than life performance. Very much so. Very much so. Very much so. Which is so, kind of in keeping with Bob Thurman too. It, yes. Everything about the movie is very big and very loud and very flashy. So if you're okay with that and you're willing to kind of just go with the flow, I think there is something to enjoy here. It might not be to your cup of tea, like for the entire thing, but it really is a spectacle. Um, it just happens to be a spectacle that I really liked. Mm. So I can't fully like uh, recommend it, but I can say that it, it is, it's doing something interesting in a really great, like fun way to watch. Just, very it varies as to whether you can enjoy it or not. Um, <laughs> I I actually almost forgot that I'd seen this movie. This is how much I I remember of it. The Gray mm. Man. Yes, <laughs> I saw the Gray Man as well. Um, I, mean, I literally you not. It's the it's the biggest most successful movie Netflix has had yet. Seriously? Yes. Really? Yeah, it is their oh. most successful film. They are like rushing into production a sequel. They're very wow. happy with how the great man has done. I'm not sure how I feel about this. I mean, so it's it's directed by the Russo brothers. It's adapted from a book by Mark Graney, who, from what I understand, has written an entire series of books about I guess these like CIA agents or whatever. I have no idea at this point. Mm-hmm. And it stars um, Ryan Gosling, Chris Evans, and Anna Darmas, which, I mean, that right there was all it needed to sell me was the cast. And then I'm like, oh, it's directed by the Russos. It'll have some great action. I honestly maybe remember half of the plot and the final scene and Chris Evans' mustache. And that's kind of everything I remember about this movie. Yeah, that's that's pretty much everything that's worth remembering about it. All right. It's um, like I, I was with you. It's like, okay, Russo brothers making a movie with Ryan Gosling, Chris Evans, Anna Darmus. It's a spy action thriller. It's like, I am so in. I am ready for this movie. I am preparing my body as we speak to watch this film. Got excited to watch it and found out that it was one of the dullest, most uninteresting pieces of packing material I have ever watched in my entire life. There were some creative action scenes that I thought were interesting and I stuff I hadn't seen before, like 
fighting on an airplane that is like being ripped apart because it's been depressurized in flight. I thought that was cool. Um, there, there's some legitimately cool action in it, but even the action isn't interesting. And one of the biggest problems is not a single character in this film is a character. They're not even a caricature. They're just a fence post with no emotions, with no motivation, just people do stuff and you don't care why they're doing it or what happens to them or even what the relationship to each other is. And the only thing that I really walked away from this is with a greater appreciation for the Bourne franchise and for what Matt Damon does in those films, because he's essentially, they're essentially telling like a very similar story where it's like, Oh, here's this agent who's basically persona non grata now and is, you know, on the run and is being hunted by the, you know, we've seen this story a billion times before, but all the stuff that they do in this movie, they do in the Bourne films, and they make that interesting, and they make me care about what happens to the characters in those movies. I didn't give a shit what happened to anyone in this movie. It was long, it was dumb, it was boring, and I did not care about any of it. And it was okay. so disappointing, because I wanted to like it. I'm, I, okay, we're on this exact same page. The other thing that struck me the watching the stash was good. <laughs> oh, the, the stash was the stash was amazing. I, I will say amazing. Chris Evans is having fun because he's played a right bastard, and you do get a few moments of him just being like a total asshole, and that's amusing because it's Chris Evans. But that's so fleeting and minimal compared to the entirety of the film. I have never seen Ryan Gosling be so flat in a movie, not even in Drive where he was playing an emotionless sociopath. He is less emotional here. It, it's wild. This movie's wild. I was actually going to bring up Ryan Gosling because that was one of the things that really surprised me. Because generally speaking, when he plays, he's got like one mode and that's kind of serious disconnected asshole mode. That's the only mode Ryan Gosling operates in. You watch him in any movie, including the romance, the romances and that's his shtick. He's like this kind of straight faced, occasionally might crack a smile, but it's very minor. So when it does happen, it's like the skies open up and the sun shines down like God light. But like, this is his thing. He's always like this kind of detached human being, but here he is so fucking vacant. Like there is nothing in his eyes and he feels like there's no presence on screen whatsoever. It's like, what did you do to Ryan Gosling? (laughs) Like he's got nothing, like nothing. I don't know how this is possible and how this is possible from the Russo brothers is beyond me. How is it you have Edita Armas on screen for probably about what, like, good 20 times the amount of screen time she gets in the last James Bond movie, and yet she was infinitely more compelling in the Bond movie. Yeah, yeah. It's This is just so flat. So flat. I just... Yeah. I, I, I legit got angry at this movie for how I felt it wasted my time. 
Well, at this point, now I know that I can skip the sequel when they release it because yeah. it's not for me. <laughs> not and for honestly, me. for like the really like big stuff that um, that uh, the Netflix is doing, it's like it. it I don't. I don't know. I'm not feeling almost any of it. Like this and uh, Red Notice. And it's like a lot of the big films that they're trying to do with big stars. It all just feels so feels like packing material. I know I said that before, but that's the best way to describe it. It feels like styrofoam. It's so empty and hollow. A lot of it is though. A lot of it is just trying to get as many eyeballs on the platform as possible. And And if, and it's amazingly successful for them too, because like you put, you know, the, the rock and, you know, Ryan Reynolds in a movie together and a ton of people are going to watch it. And it doesn't matter if they turn it off after 15 minutes, they still turned it on. And so technically that counts and no one liked the movie. I haven't heard of, I've heard like maybe like 10 people that like have anything positive to say about red notice. You know, I've heard nothing. No one say anything good about the gray man. I, everyone I everyone I've talked to thought it sucked, and it's one of the most amazingly successful films that they've had, and they're going to make another one. Uh, yeah, I don't get it. I don't get it. <laughs> um, maybe this is better? Question mark? Resurrection? Question mark? Um, I mean, definitely better. Absolutely, it's a very different film. If you want to go from like this this big hollow spy action thriller, you know, on Netflix to a small intimate indie, a bleak horror film with Rebecca Hall. Um, But yeah, resurrection is, uh, was a, was a fascinating film uh, where Rebecca Hall is basically just playing. I think she's like a, ad exec or something like that some some high-powered executive and you know single mother and she starts essentially having like a breakdown when tim roth re-enters her life who is like this abusive ex-husband that she got away from and he keeps haunting her with stories about how he still has the child that they lost inside of him and can hear the child and is carrying the child. And it's like eating her up and like getting into her nightmares. And she starts to have like this complete mental breakdown in dealing with it. And it's a very difficult film to describe, but honestly, the selling point should just be small indie horror film with Rebecca Hall giving one of the most powerhouse performances of her entire career. Uh, like the last time I could say that it was the night house and the night house was great. I love the night house. She probably gives an even better performance in resurrection it is like absolutely astounding. And it's like a devastating and disturbing film. And I still haven't fully wrapped my head around it because it's like one of those but it was compelling as all hell. And it has like been lingering in my mind ever since I've seen it. It's it. I absolutely adored this film. It was great. 
So clearly this went right under my radar because I had no idea this even existed. And I just looked it up and Andrew Siemens actually directed Nancy Please a couple, like maybe 10 years ago, which is a really solid, really unsettling thriller about basically like your worst roommate of all time. Mm -hmm. It is such a good little horror movie. So I, I didn't realize he'd made another movie. So this is... This is definitely happening this week. I'm watching this this week. It's going to happen. I I can't believe I totally missed this. Oh my god. Yeah, I I highly recommend this. It's like especially once she started moving into doing like smaller films like this and especially it's like she's doing like intense psychological horror thriller type material and she's producing a lot of it too cuz she's like producing the roles she wants to be doing essentially. And I am I am absolutely loving everything Rebecca Hall has been doing over the past few years. Yeah, this is okay. Yeah, this is definitely happening. Happening again. Shifting gears radically, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, Luck, which is Peggy Holmes' uh, new animated feature at uh, Apple. Um, so Apple stuck, struck a deal with Skydance Animation. Uh, they've been, they're in the process of, I think this is their first feature animated film and they're going to be making a second one that's going to be releasing on Apple later this year. But uh, this was the first. And it's a really charming story about this young girl who has aged out of the foster system. And uh, so she is basically now on her own in her own apartment. And when she leaves the foster home that she's at, she um, leaves behind this little girl who reminds her of herself um, who is very young and about to meet her first potential forever family. And so the little girl is trying to put together all of these lucky charms to try to make uh, the home visit super successful. And the last thing they need to find is a lucky penny. And the little girl finds the lucky penny and gives it to the older girl. And then she goes and loses it. (laughs) So now it becomes the story of trying to find another lucky penny. And it turns into this like fantastical story about this young woman who goes to this mystical land to find the lucky penny. It sounds completely ludicrous. It's a little bit cheesy. Yeah, it's true, but it is what it is. I thought it was super charming. Um, I really like this story. I think it's very sweet. It's really well made. It has a lot of really great uh, emotional moments. And it was nice to see something kind of light and fluffy that wasn't Disney. <laughs> and the, the the character design here, the, the, the designs are quite different than what we're used to seeing from the Disney Pixar machine. So it was just like a nice, refreshing um, uh film that still has like an emotional heart kind of like uh, the Pixar projects, but just slightly different. Like it just feels a little bit like its own thing. And I really like that. So I really enjoyed luck. I thought it was really good and hooray for Peggy that she finally gets to make some big uh, expensive animated movies. She came from um, the Walt Disney home video um slate of movies i think she made like a couple of direct to dvd or vhs i don't even know how long ago that was but she made like a a tinkerbell movie i think and a little mermaid movie so this was like her first sort of like original story which she also co-wrote so it's um i really liked it i thought it was really funny and really charming and sweet and very colorful 
I haven't seen this movie yet, but as I was looking at all the the advertising for it, one thing that kind of struck me is like I noticed how rare it is to see an animated family movie where it isn't like animals centered at some point. It's just people. And the fact that there were no, at least it appears there's no animals in this movie. Um, there are. Okay. There's a cat played I, by Simon Pegg. Okay. I'm surprised they don't make that more front and center because that was the thing that kind of struck me. It's like, wait a minute, there's just people. And I didn't realize how off-putting that would be until I saw like advertising for a family animated movie with just people. And I'm like, it's weird without the animals. Why Why am I expecting animals in everything? There's but a lucky, I am. Yeah, well, there is. There's a lucky black cat played okay, by Simon Pegg. <laughs> So all is right in the world. Nothing is out of place. The universe has everything we're supposed to be. That's right. That's right. But I certainly enjoyed (laughs) this more than I enjoyed Lightyear. So I don't know what that says about me, but hooray hooray for the female creator is all I have to say. (laughs) Oh, and that's on Apple TV plus. And let's finish with something totally different because this is the the theme of the last half of today's episode uh jumping like giant taking giant leaps and themes uh let's finish with prey yeah the new film from uh dan trachtenberg 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 oh god yes i don't i've been i've been following dan trachtenberg for quite a while um he's uh Many, many years ago, he uh, he made a short fan film that was based on the game Portal and put on YouTube. And it got a lot of attention, paid off well for him, and kind of helped launch his career. And he's been on... I think he's a, he's a really talented director who innately gets genre very well, um, more than most people. And unfortunately has spent most of his directing career trapped in development hell on various projects. Um, he, in, in particular, he was attached to the uncharted movie for a while and he eventually left that movie because it, you know, it, it became very clear. It was not going to be uncharted. And he's like, no, nope, I'm out. And I know he was developing why the last man for a long time is a film before it finally move forward as a TV series with someone else. And so he's, he's had a lot of that in his career. And, uh, you know, of the films he did get out, he got to make uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane, which I like a lot. Me too. And now here he is doing a new Predator movie. And the spin is really just that we are going back to, um, I can't remember what year this film is in, but it basically, um, you know, the, we're with a, a tribe of uh, Comanche uh, natives on on the plains and going about their daily business and in comes a predator. And you have this one girl uh, played by Amber Mid-Thunder who is basically dealing with the fact that she wants to be a hunter and the rest of the tribe is like, no, no, you're just a girl. You can't, you can't be a hunter. And then you know, gets basically thrown into the shit and proves her metal against this alien creature that is hunting them. And honestly, 
if it weren't for the fact that the very first Predator movie needs to exist for this movie to exist, I would probably say this is the best Predator movie. It is. This was a fantastic movie. I loved everything about it. I loved it right up to the very last frame of the film. Super fun time. It is definitely the second best Predator movie. Um, granted, I think there's some really kind of like stinker Predator movies, but uh, the movie is fantastic. It, it absolutely nailed it. It went back to the heart of what this entire franchise is supposed to be. And, you know, just like completely nailed it. And people seem to be like not disagreeing. It's like this has gotten... Everyone's raving about this movie. I haven't heard anyone say that it wasn't one of the most incredible things they've seen all year. And chances are, this is going to be in my top 10 at the end of the year. Yeah, no, I fully agree. And I think that you're right. Like that, The Predator franchise has gone through a lot of ups and downs, mostly a lot of downs. And I mean... I, I could understand. I can understand why there's been this like decades long love affair trying to keep this franchise going because the concept is really really cool. But generally speaking, it has other. And I mean, I w- I'm with you. Like, I would, I would, I would venture to say that this is better than even the first Predator movie. It just is a like. Overall, it's just a better made movie. But I think, I guess, clearly the original gets some recognition because, like you say, without it, there would be this one wouldn't exist. But I mean, I did, we did rewatch Predator not shortly after basically watching Prakes. It's like, it's been a long time. Let's rewatch this. And it's, it's good, but it is not a great movie. It's not one that has aged particularly well. Um, it's it still remains to be seen whether this one will age well. I think it will probably age much better. Um, one of the things I like about it that Dan, like you say, seems to understand on like a very innate level is how to direct a really good thriller. Like he knows where to place the camera and how to build tension in a really great and really interesting way that's also visually telling a story and i think that plays particularly well with the story he's telling here and i love that there is a lot of like the movie is really not about the predator it's about the characters and their day-to-day struggles and they just happen to run into this alien being um and i think that that works extremely well and i think it's one of the reasons why the movie plays so well I will say we did have the strangest conversation after this movie was done because we were like, okay, so if this is technically a prequel, (laughs) is the Predator technology, like, in the newer movies, like, more advanced? And, like, that would require actually having to watch the other Predator movies (laughs) to compare the technology advancement, and I don't know if I want to go there. But it's kind of an interesting point that is so stupid. But yes, we did consider it. Talk about it for a good I, yeah, 20 minutes. That, that doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> me either. I, I, honestly, I think like in all the other Predator movies, it has like more kind of technologically advanced weapons um, here. Like he's very much like hand to hand in this. Oh, yeah. In this movie, whereas in the other movies, he's basically got like a, a you know, an arsenal of yeah, it's yeah, like this shoulder-mounted gun that can detect yeah. heat signatures and shit like that. So, 
it definitely gets more advanced as it goes on. But I think this movie will uh, it will stand the test of time well. And one of the reasons is, is that it was um, they they invested in having a significant amount of uh, both research and representation on set to make sure that they were uh, dealing with essentially like the the Comanche um, Native American uh, elements of it as authentically as possible. And they even did, um, they originally wanted to have all the dialogue in the film be Comanche. That's how it was written and intended. And unfortunately, the compromise was that they were allowed to do a Comanche dub. So there's a dub of the film that you can, uh, version of the film that you can watch that is in Comanche as opposed to in English. Um, unfortunately, I don't prefer that version. The sole reason is the rubbery lips. It's still the same actors doing the dialogue, but it's, you know, it's it's unfortunate. I, I wish they had been allowed to do it in Comanche. I think not only would it have been more authentic, I think it probably would have been a better film. It's like not a dialogue-heavy film to begin with. You end up with a lot of different um, different camps of people that appear in the film. There are a bunch of French trappers that you run into. They're speaking French. Uh, there's an English pioneer. It's like he's speaking English. It's like, so you can have like the different languages in their mixing. And I think that only serves to like aid the film because it's existing with this whole world of like, here's all these people that are basically invading this tribe's homeland and they're having to defend against uh, while they, you know, continue to provide for their, for their tribe. And the language barrier only helps to sell, to, to tell that story further. And when everyone's speaking English for the benefit of the audience, it removes that barrier, which is a significant part of the story. So it's, uh, it's unfortunate that they weren't allowed to do that, but the very fact that a Comanche dub of this film exists that you can watch on Hulu, that is something I've never seen that before. That's, yeah, a, that's, that's, that's a new one. And so that's definitely, uh, that's a step in the right direction. Fully agree. Fully agree. Also, so, just one last thing I want to say about is Amber Midthunder is absolutely like a massive star. If she does not break out huge as a result of this movie, I don't know what we're doing because she is incredible in this movie. I agree. I really liked her. And I also, I really liked um, uh, Dakota Beavers, who I thought was really good as well. I think she plays her brother. I mm-hmm. thought they were both yeah. definitely the highlights, but she is, like you say, star star she needs to be in a lot more stuff that's for sure we'll end on a positive note when has that ever happened it happens all the time and that's why you should go watch prey (laughs) i love it i love it um so that's kind of part one of our uh, return from summer break uh we'll come back uh, next week with part two of the show so be sure to come on by atcpod.ca to check it out in the meantime you can um follow up with us on the Twitters. Where can they find you, Miss Ashley, if they've forgotten in the last hour we've been talking? If you've forgotten, you can find me on Twitter at Ashley Lynch. And you can find me at The Marine. And again, we'll be back next week with part two of our Return from Summer Break. Until then! Insert catchphrase here.
opening and closing credits are Happy Alley by composer Kevin McLeod. For more information, visit incompetech.com.